We want to invite you all to open your scriptures to um, the book of 1 Kings. And what I'm going to do is conclude a series that I started in uh, 2013. <laughs> so, many of you weren't with us in 2013, but those of you that um, were may remember we, we looked at the, at the life of the prophet Elijah in what we called a series called The Gospel According to Elijah. And there was a second half to it, which I had purposefully waited until uh, sometime in the future to do, which is now, uh, where we're going to now transition and look at the life of Elisha, the, the one who followed Elijah, uh, the prophet. So uh, if you have your scriptures, look at uh, chapter 19 of First Kings. And we're going to start reading with verse 9. Uh, it's printed in your bulletin. And so uh, uh, this is the transition from the ministry of Elijah the prophet to Elisha the prophet. And there's some fantastic things that we'll talk about in a few minutes. So let's look at that starting in verse 9. This is Elijah who is uh, uh, heading to Mount Sinai. He's going to, in fact, in the text it says a cave, but it actually says in Hebrew, the cave. He went to the same cave, the same cutout that, the, that Moses had gone to and had seen the glory of the Lord pass before him. And so uh, let's start reading in, uh, in verse 9. There he came to the cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death, and I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
So he departed from there and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. In the 1920s, there was a discovery made in uh, the city or area of Rosh Shamra in Syria, which was where the ancient Canaanite city of Ugarit uh, used to exist. And they found these clay tablets that described Baal, the god that, uh, or one of many gods that the Canaanites and the people of that region worshipped. There were there wasn't just one Baal. There were lots of Baals, lots of gods. They were regional. And so in Ugarit, they find this, uh, this tablet and they translate Ugaritic into our language. And it said this, Baal is the prince, the lord of the earth, the mighty one, the rider of the clouds. And the Phoenician images of Baal are of a God who holds the king, sometimes, in his hand by his hair. In other words, the king is the son of Baal, the son of God. In other images, it has Baal holding a club in his right hand, which was the thunder, and in his left hand a spear, which was lightning. It signified rain. This is 850 B.C., long time ago. And this is the world that Elijah the prophet and Elisha lived in. And as modern Americans, 21st century Westerners, we think that, uh, uh, you know, that we're so advanced, we have, we have so much knowledge, we're so much smarter uh, than everybody else. And yet, this world, interestingly enough, was very similar to our current world. It was very difficult for people who truly believed the gospel that was being preached by these prophets. It's very difficult. And we as, as modern Christians, especially those of us who actually believe the Bible and take what God said uh, at its face value, if He said it, okay, I, I understand, I want to I learn more about that. We can find ourselves in what we considered to be a paradox. It can be very difficult. How, how do we live in this world? How do we live in a world that seems to be so faithless? How can we remain faithful in that world? And that's the question, folks. While you may think we live in a Christian nation, this nation is anything but Christian. In fact, the only Christianity that is in our country today exists in the pockets of believers that are holding fast to God's Word. That's where the church exists. That's where faith exists. 
And I'm not going to tell you that it's going to be easy to live that kind of life in this kind of world. But Elijah and Elisha managed to do it 850 B.C. The world they lived in was violent, gruesome, bloody, highly sexualized. We think that our 21st century say there was nothing compared to what they lived in. There was a vast pantheon of gods, the Baals and others, that ruled the world and controlled the weather and fertility and the the very living. You see, we get in the car, we go to the grocery store, we buy groceries, but that's not what they did. They grew what they ate. And if it didn't rain, they starved. The world, they were much closer to the elements than we are. Their very existence was controlled by the cosmos around them. The Sidonian princess, Jezebel, was a devotee. She was a priestess of Baal of Sidon. And when she married Ahab, the king of Israel, she made it her mission to crush and destroy the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. That was her mission. And so she began slaughtering the prophets of God and persecuting the people of God. And to be a believer in that world was to be persecuted. You didn't just get to change and go to whatever church you want and you know do whatever you want. It was hard to be a believer in those days. And I believe that it's harder today to be a real Christian, even though we live in what is considered to be a Christian world. It's very hard to hold on to true faith in this faithless world. So very quickly, let me give you the context and then we'll jump in and look at this transition that is really remarkable and has a lot to say to those of us that claim to be believers in Jesus Christ and the God of Elijah and the God of Elisha. Jezebel had been murdering these these priests and and, uh, pastors and uh, prophets of God and there was nobody left. And all of a sudden, in the book of Kings, Elijah appears out of nowhere. And he challenges these prophets of Baal, Jezebel's prophets, to a duel. Let's go to the mountain, Mount Carmel, and let's see who is really God. I challenge you. And so Jezebel sends 450 of her prophets. Now, it's very interesting, she kept back another 400. She didn't send them all. Which is kind of too bad, because if you know the story, they all got killed, and it would have been kind of nice to wipe them all out. Now, I know that's not a very Christian thing to say, but, well, let's move on. So, they have this duel on Mount Carmel, and you all know the story, you know, the prophets, they build two altars, and, God, and Elijah says, the God who answers by fire, let him be God, and they said, they agreed, and so they make the two altars, and they put the, the animals on the altar, and, and they, they, the prophets of Baal, starting in morning till, till the evening, they're yelling and whooping and throwing themselves and doing all of their rituals, cutting themselves and throwing blood on the altar and calling, Baal, Baal, and, and he doesn't answer. Nothing happens. And Elijah starts to mock them. He starts to 
to chide them. Where is your God? Where oh, I know. Maybe he's, off. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's taken a journey. We may have to wait a while till he hears. Oh, I know what he's doing. He's over there going to the bathroom. He actually says that. Now, in the English translations, they don't want to shock us. Western, you know, we're pur- puritanical. We don't want to. But what it says in Hebrew is pretty raw. He's over there, blankety, blankety, blank. Right? Very raw. Very, very, uh, d- 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 putting him down. Putting the bale down, down. He's, he's nothing. Where is he? Where is he? And, and the prophets get more wild. And they're cutting more and going more crazy. Finally, Elijah, of course, you know the story. They, he says, I'm going to call on God. And they bring water. They douse the, 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 the altar with water. Soak everything with water. And he calls and he just prays one simple prayer. And fire comes down and consumes the altar, consumes the sacrifice, consumes everything, and it even goes so far as to say that the flames licked up the water and licked up the dirt. It just left a hole in the ground. And then the people fell down and worshipped God, and it was a revival, and Elijah says, grab all those prophets and slaughter them. It was a bloodbath. Believe that's in your Bible, folks? Isn't that something? Pretty gruesome. And they all get killed. And Jezebel sends a message and tells Elijah, be it done unto me and more so if your head, if I don't take your head off before the next night goes by. It's a short amount of time. You're a dead man. And Elijah is confronted with this problem. This paradox. This question. God just did this amazing, one of the most amazing miracles in all the Scripture, one of the most dramatic scenes in all the Scripture. And there, you would think, revival. And nothing happens. And he has to run for his life. And he runs for 40 days. Mark it down in your mind. 40 days he goes into the wilderness. And he goes to the mountain of God, which was Sinai. He went to Sinai and he goes into the cave. The cave where Moses was. And he's complaining, what is going on? We've just done this great thing. Where is the kingdom? Why is it so hard for me to be faithful in this faithless world? What's up with that? And of course, we read the story. There's victory, but despondency. And this is what I've told you all for years. To be a Christian, to be a Christian, means you're going to live in tension. There's going to be a lot of questions, a lot of paradoxes, a lot of things where we don't really understand, uh, things that we can't answer. But we're called, we are challenged by God to be faithful, to be persevere, to hang in there, not to be afraid. So what does it teach us? And I think what we see in this transition is amazing. And so let's take off and we'll look at the life of Elijah, Elisha over the next few weeks up until Easter. But we see three things this morning. First of all, we see that this transition shows us that we must have hope for the future. 
We must invest in the future and we must sacrifice for the future. Hope, invest, and sacrifice. So what does hope mean? What is this transition, this story transitioning from Elijah to Elisha telling us? Well, look at verse 15 through 18. When God answers Elijah, He doesn't uh, answer his question directly, which Elijah was there to say, where are you? Where is the revival that I expected after Mount Carmel? He doesn't answer that question. What does he tell Elijah to do? He tells Elijah, go from here. Leave. Go back the way you came. Go. Act. Move. Obey me. Risk. Believe. Trust me. Every Sunday, the last thing I say to you all is, will you trust Him? He's telling Elijah, are you going to trust me? Even though everything doesn't look exactly like you think it should, will you trust me? Go. You see, faith, hope and faith are not passive. They are at times. But they are also active. Believing is actually doing something. It is resting and trusting in the One who has spoken. God. It's putting your trust in Him. Faith is not a force that you have that you extend out and make things move with that invisible force. That's what many Christians believe. And it's wrong. Faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. So you can believe in Baal, you can believe in a rock, a tree, you can believe in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, you can believe in anything you want. And you can sincerely believe with all your heart and all your strength. But Isaiah said, you can believe it, but that block of wood can't save you. Why? Because half of it you put in the fire to warm yourself, half of it you use to cook your food, and the other half, see he wasn't a very good mathematician, was he? You make an idol and you fall down and you worship that block of wood. And then he says in Hebrew, you blockhead. How can you be such a blockhead to worship a block of wood? And we do that all the time. We make gods. And and the God of, of America is us. We're our own God today. Elijah and Elisha face that same kind of world. And God told this prophet, go. Get, go back. Are you going to trust me? Return to the land. Leave the wilderness. We're not meant for the wilderness. Now folks, we're pilgrims right now and this is a lousy place to live at times. But God has promised another world is coming. Will you trust Him? Will you? And he's asking Elijah the same thing. Go back, leave the wilderness, go back to the land of promise. Anoint Hazael, king of Syria, Jehu as king of Israel, and Elisha, prophet in your place. What he's saying to Elijah is, look, things don't end with you, Elijah. Go back. The kingdom will continue. And I'm going to show you how it's going to continue. 
I'm going to anoint this king of Syria. It's me doing it. He's my king. And I want you to go anoint this terrible, I think it was Jeroboam that he, that he anoints as king of Syria, another terrible king. Go anoint him. He's going to be king. I'm in control. He's telling Elijah, I'm still God, even though everything's not working out according to your plan. I'm still God. And not only that, you're done, you're finished. Time for you to come to me, and I'm going to replace you. Now, how would you like God to tell you that? I mean, really, come on, have a, give me a break. I'm the only one, he says. I'm the only one that's been faithful. There's nobody. And God says to him, you know what? There's 7,000 others besides you. There's plenty of people that have not bowed and kissed the knee to Bell. Who do you think you are? And don't we do that sometimes? We feel like we're so, you know, we're so self-absorbed. It's just amazing. He says, go back. Anoint. Do. Continue. The continuation of the kingdom, it doesn't begin with us and it doesn't end with us. It begins with God and it ends with God. It is God's kingdom. It's His world. And He controls it. And no, it doesn't always look like it should. What He's telling us is, trust me. Have hope. The writer of Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, faith is trusting that that hope in in the future is not uh, wishful thinking, a certainty. It's a certainty that is in the future. It's just not here right now. But it's coming. It's like a tsunami. It's the earthquake has happened. It happened on Resurrection Sunday. And the wave is coming closer now than it was when the sermon started. And at the end of the sermon, closer yet. It's moving. It's coming. Will you trust me? Will you have hope in that? Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is the bedrock of belief that 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 truth, that what God said is true. Go back, anoint Hazael, anoint Jehu, go, go back and do what you're supposed to do and trust me. Especially, let me tell you this, especially, when it doesn't look like it. How many, I don't know how many of you, I don't know all your stories, but I know some of you have, have, have gone in to the, see the doctor and come out with, a, with the blood's all gone from your face and you're trying to catch your breath because you've gotten some bad news. Yes? I have. Where are your gods then? Where is the gods that we trusted in them? Where are they? Who's going to come in and say to you on that day when the checkbook is empty? Where's the God then? Are you going to trust me? Will you have hope? When it doesn't look like it is often when things are really happening. You see, awaiting Elijah were these people. And that's what he's telling him. Go out there and find them. So look at verse 19. He departed. He obeyed. He went and he found Elisha. He had to go find him. He had to work and get out there and find this replacement for him. 
who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he comes up to him, and in the customs of the day, the prophet wore a cloak, and that's how you recognize that, a certain look to them. And he takes his cloak and he throws it over the shoulder of Elisha, signaling to not only Elisha, but everyone else, this is my successor. This is who will take over for me. You know, Dennis Rainey, uh, who's the director of Family Life Campus Crusade, Monty V and I worked for Family Life for a while. Uh, Dennis Rainey used to say, our children are messengers. We send into the future a future we will not see. Our children are messengers we send into a future we will not see. Now to do that, you have to have faith. You have to believe. You have to expect that God is preparing a future. You see, most of us folks, and and look, I understand. Most of us think it all ends with us. We die, you know, and we kind of hope things work out for our kids. But this morning, A young lady came up here and took vows before a holy God, solemn vows. She said yes to him because he already said yes to her. Otherwise, it's all on her. But she said yes to him because he said yes to her already. And when she comes this morning and takes that bread, and I hope you do the same, you put it in your mouth and you drink that cup and you feel that little sting that wine leaves. It's because he said, not because of what you say or bring. It's the thing, the person behind it that gives it its substance. Expect God to do something. Expect Him. He is preparing a future. It may not look like it, but He is preparing a future. Will you trust Him? Go and find it. Engage. What He's, what he's telling Elijah and what He's telling us is we, the kingdom is going to continue. Will you have hope? Will you invest? Will you go out and invest in people, in lives, in your children, in your family, in your friends? Will you actually invest time with people? Not make them a project and go knock on the door and, you know, will you, would you like to accept Jesus? Oh no, okay, see you later and goodbye. No, the 21st century, that doesn't work. Now, you better have relation. You better get to know people. And when they reject you, you tell them, okay, fine, let's go have a beer. I mean, we're Presbyterians. We actually... It's okay. Now, if you you don't like that, go have a cup of coffee. Right? But we have relationships, and people say, I don't like your faith. Okay, I don't, you know, it's all right. You don't have to like my faith. Let's stay, let's let's have relationships. And let them see you, see your life, hear what you have to say. Invest, cast your cloak on them. Let them know that you're for them, that you're with them, that you're not going to abandon them. I've had people and I've had people sit across the desk from me and tell me stuff. I've had people confess sins to me. And they expect me to blink and, and kind of draw back. 
And I always tell people the same thing. Every time I hear it, welcome to the club, man. Tell me more. <laughs> you know, I, I, you want to hear mine? I'll show you, you know, the, how, remember when you were a kid, you used to say, look at my scar. And you go, oh yeah, look at my scar. And you know, you start comparing wounds, right? Listen, we're all pretty messed up, right? And so if you, if you, are, if you blink, I don't care what they tell you, if you blink, then you haven't taken a good, clear look at your own stuff. Otherwise, you won't blink. You'll say, Nick, come here. Let me give you a hug. I know what that is. I've seen that before. In fact, I got one bigger than that. Confess your sins to one another, James said, so that you can be healed. So you can be well. Don't hide. Invest. Cast your cloak. And address their doubts. Look at verse 20. Elisha had doubts. You know, Jesus and the other Bible, biblical witness says, don't fear. Do not fear. 365 times. One for every day of the year. Do not fear. But he never said anything about don't doubt. He did ask people, why is your faith so small? I mean, look how great I am and you're not going to trust me? That's a good legitimate question. But he didn't say we're going to go through life without doubts. I have doubts. You have doubts. Elisha had doubts. Let me kiss my father and mother, then I'll follow. Does that sound familiar? You know, several people said that to Jesus. And it's very interesting. Elijah's answer was kind of harsh. I mean, I don't really know what he He says, go, get away, go back. Now, Elisha, his request was understandable because he was the firstborn and it was his responsibility to take care of the family. But Elijah would have none of it. The challenge was there. Jesus said the same thing. Don't go back and bury your father. Don't give me an excuse. Will you follow me? That sounds harsh. But Jesus is not inviting us to a picnic. Now I know there are churches all around El Paso today and you can go there and God bless them, they're going to tell you that Christianity is a picnic. And that God is going to fix all your problems and you're going to have your best life right now. And then if you trust Him, there's nothing but blessings that are going to fall from heaven. And may God strike me dead if I ever lie to you that way. I won't do it and neither will the elders in this church. We're going to tell you the truth. And the truth is Christianity is no picnic. There will be a picnic. But sometimes not right now. The challenge is leveled. Are you going to trust me? Will you follow me? Will you come and follow me? And finally, will you sacrifice? So he's asking him, will you hope? He's telling Elijah, hope, invest, go find your successor, Believe that the kingdom is going to continue even after you're gone and that I will accomplish what I have begun in this world. Will you trust me? And it's going to take sacrifice. You're going to have to... Look, I would love to paint a very rosy picture for you, but folks, there are going to be things that are going to have to go in your life. There are things that, are, that you must sacrifice. And they're not what you think. They're not these little sins and stuff. Well, I know I've got to stop doing this. I've got to stop doing this. I've got to start doing it. No, 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 no. 
It's much worse. I wish it was that easy. God has asked us for nothing less. Look, our church may never get much bigger than this because this is not easy to say. But let me say it because it is what the Bible says. God has asked for nothing less than for you to give your life to Him every molecule, every atom. He doesn't want half measures. He doesn't want part. He doesn't want you to add Jesus to your life like an appendage and kind of stick Him on and say, oh, you know, I'm going to add some spirituality to my life. He becomes everything. It's all or nothing. Let the dead bury the dead. You want, to go, you want to go back and take care of this business over there? Go back completely. Elijah's tough, man. I don't know. He wouldn't have made it in modern church. They would have, they would have thrown him out a long time ago. So what does Elisha do? He took the oxen. Look at verse 21. He sacrificed them. He boiled. He gave it to them peace. The people, in other words, they had a feast. They had a sacrifice, which was not unusual. They built an altar. They, and the sacrifice that he put was everything he had. And he burned it. And he shared it with everyone. And then he got his, whatever a few belongings he had. I don't know what he had. And he goes and he starts following and attending to Elijah, uh, the prophet. You know, I started when I was in college here at UTEP. I I dropped out of college. Kids don't do that. But I did. I dropped out of college after two years. And I started a business. And uh, built the business, just me. And then I built it up. I had employees and all this stuff after 20 years. uh, uh, and, And for some crazy reason, I know some friends of ours said it was a midlife crisis. Maybe that's what it was. But at 42, I decided to sell everything and go to seminary and start a second career as, an, as a minister. And uh, we, we sold everything, our house, our business, everything. And at 42 years old, we moved to Orlando, Florida to go to seminary. And you might think, oh, wow, that Chuck, he's just amazing. Folks, that was the easy part. That was the easy part. The hard part has been every day since waking up every morning and looking myself in the mirror, and you're going to have to do the same, and saying, what do I need to put on the altar today? What has got my heart? What am I, trust- what am I really trusting in that if it was taken away from me, I would question God's goodness? What is it? Because at the end of the day, if you can identify that thing, that if it's taken away from you, you will start to question God's goodness. That is your God. Really. You can come to church. You can pretend to be a Christian. But at the end of the day, if we take that thing away or those things, that's what you got to put on the altar. Every single day. And if you'll do it, they will no longer have you. You listening? They will no longer control you. You will not be enslaved to them. Slowly but slowly, you will put 
those blocks of wood to death. It takes a lifetime, by the way. It doesn't happen tomorrow. Just it's, it's a process. You go through your whole life identifying those things and putting a stake into the hearts of those vampire gods that are sucking the blood out of us. And replacing them, as Thomas Chalmers said, replacing them with, with the expulsive power of a new affection. It's learning to love something else more, not just getting rid of those idols. Hoping, investing, sacrificing. You see, to put jealousy, to put pride, to put arrogance, to put uh, uh, the need for approval, to go down and find out what's really got you, and to take that thing, identify it, and put it on the altar, and then stab it in the heart, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be. It's going to be painful. And then tomorrow you're going to wake up and say, "Oh my gosh, I thought I got rid of that," and there it is again. Like it has a life of its own. And so you go at it again, and you go at it again, and you know the whole time that you're doing that, God is pleased. He's not holding his nose and saying, "Oh my gosh, he did it again. Chuck did it again. He did it again." No, he's saying, "Go." Go, leave the wilderness. Hope, trust, have faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you know this, Christian martyr, World War II, opposed Hitler, ended up losing his life right at the end of the war. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship, a very wonderful book. And the most famous quote in his whole book Every one of you probably have heard it and know it. Some of you know it. When Christ calls a man, He bids him, come and what? Come and die. When Christ calls a man, He bids him, come and die. How do you do that? How can you possibly live that kind of life, that kind of faith in a faithless world, surrounded with skepticism? How do you do it? Well, here it is. It's as plain as I can make it. Two men in the Bible both went to the same cave. Two men. Moses and Elijah. Both men went into that cave. The cave. And both men asked God to kill them and put them to death. They no longer wanted to live. They were so filled with despair. They wanted to die. And God said, no, you will not die. But the man who was prefigured by those two, by Moses and by Elijah and by Elisha and by many of the other prophets. The true prophet, the true king, the true high priest. He went into a garden and he asked God, let me live. And God said no. No, you will die. You'll die. So Moses and Elijah and Elisha and 
Chuck. I don't even know if I can put my name in that list, but I will. And you, so you will live. And Jesus said, remarkably, I'll do whatever you say. I will have hope. I will trust you. I will invest my life in all of these people who come and worship me. I will give them my Holy Spirit. I will take their place on the cross so that sin no longer can enslave you, that those chains are broken, and that nothing can be your master. If you don't want it to be your master, it cannot master you. I will free my people from their slavery. I will go into the wilderness for them. Remember? I will go into the wilderness for them. I will go into the forsakenness for them. And I will come again from the grave for them. For the joy that was set before Him, Jesus for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, so that He could win us for God, so that we could trust Him, invest, sacrifice. Don't let anything stand in your way. Run to Him. Cling to Him. Trust Him. Will you? Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, <laughs> I wish I could preach some other message, something more upbeat. But what could be more upbeat than that? To know that our chains have been destroyed through the blood and righteousness of Your Son. What is better than that? I have felt the chains of sin around my heart all my life. And the only time they're ever broken is through You, Jesus. Help. Help us. Help us to hope in You, to look to You, to invest in others, to sacrifice every one of those, every one of those idols on the, on the daily to put them to death. Help us. Save us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, according to Your grace. Amen.